Welcome to Writes for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Dharawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Rights for Women. We've got a real treat in store for you this week on the podcast and apologies that it is a little bit late. I was away last week helping my daughter move from a property on the south coast of New South Wales to more central going out towards West New South Wales in Yass. So they've bought a horse property there and it was just beautiful. It was glorious to be out in the country just with all that wide open space and skies, but helping them move and looking after my two little grand boys was, let's shall we say, busy. Uh, But anyway, back on deck now, and that's the reason for this particular episode being a little late, so getting back into a schedule again now. So on this week's episode of Rights for Women, we have guest host Rachel Johns. Rachel's a regular on the podcast these days, which is fabulous. Speaking to Patty Callahan-Henry, a New York Times bestselling author of contemporary fiction and historical fiction with 16, I think, or it could be 17 books under her belt. And this is a great chat between two really experienced authors talking about their writing life, comparing their processes. Rachel talks to Patty about her shift from contemporary fiction into historical fiction. They talk about their respective processes And there's a whole lot of other great stuff in there for readers. If you love fabulous historical fiction, and this one sounds like it is absolutely brilliant, The Secret Book of Flora Lee. There's plenty of great stuff in here for readers. And there's also some fabulous writing advice and writing chat between these two authors for all the writers listening out there. So I really hope you enjoy the chat as much as I loved listening to it as I was editing it. Before we get on to that, a little quick writing update. I've just finished editing the novella, A Christmas to Remember, which is going to be published in October as part of the Country Vet Christmas Anthology published by HQ here in Australia, alongside Penelope Janu, Alyssa Callan, Stella Quinn and Lily Malone. So I am really looking forward to this anthology coming out in October. So you're going to be hearing more about that. They're all stories with a Christmas theme and a vet theme, as we've all written books previously with vets in them. So watch out for that. The pre-order will be up soon and I'll pop the links to that into the show notes when that comes out. So I've been finishing those edits. I'm about to jump back into writing Out of the Ashes, which is the next book in the Blackwater Lake series, although it will also be a standalone book. Blackwater Lake is in the process of getting a brand new cover from my publisher, Belinda Audio, and that will be out in around July, August. So I will keep you updated with that. And of course, All We Dream, since I have last done an update on the podcast, All We Dream is now available in audio. So you can get that from Audible, Belinda, wherever you get your audio books. And it's also available on BorrowBox as a library audio book that you can download and listen to and borrow through the library system if you're in Australia. I'm really excited about the narration. Annabelle Tudor is a fantastic narrator and has done a brilliant job of narrating All We Dream. So really looking forward to listeners being able to get that into their audio feeds. Apart from that, I am back to working on the podcast. I'm doing some mentoring. The second round of my Turn Up Detention course is currently running and there will be another round of that in September, October, if anyone's interested in that. So keep an eye on my website, pamelacook.com.au for that. And before we get into the interview with Rachel, I will share with you this week's writing tip, which I have promised to be bringing you each week as part of the podcast. So this week's writing tip is about structure and turning points. And it's something that came to me once again as I attended the launch of one of my ex-students from the Australian Writers' Centre Write Your Novel course, which I attended on Friday night 
Sarah Rogers has published her novel In the End, which she was working on as part of the course, and I was her tutor on that for a year. And it's a beautifully produced novel. It's a fantastic story set in contemporary New York about family and relationships. But one of the things that Sarah talked about in her speech when she was launching the book was the fact that, and I had to really go back and mine my memory to remember this, but one of the bits of advice I gave her when I read a few of her earlier chapters was about creating an inciting incident at the beginning of the book that launches the character into the story arc that then is developed through all of the turning points that follow on from that at the 25% mark, the 50% mark, the 75 and 80 or 90% mark, and then the resolution. Now, Sarah did say that she had initially had that inciting incident, which I think in that case was a letter that the character finds. Uh, She had that further on in the book. And once she moved it to the beginning or closer to the beginning of the story, it actually then kicked off the whole rest of the plot. And it was a really pivotal moment for her as the author knowing where the story was going and also for the character in terms of the journey that the character then went on. It set up a goal for the character and it set up a whole plot line that then unraveled from that point. So I think a lot of writers sometimes resist this idea of having turning points in particular places because sometimes it can feel or seem to formulate. I don't want to write the same story everybody else is writing. Why should I have turning points where other people tell me to have them? That sort of thing. We can be a little bit resistant and I know I've been like that in the past myself. But one of the things that I came upon many years ago now was Michael Haig's six-stage plot structure. And I'll put a link to this in the show notes. Michael Haig is a screenwriter and I was fortunate enough to see him as a speaker presenting a workshop at the Romance Writers of Australia conference quite a number of years ago now and it was a fantastic full-day workshop. And he actually gave us copies of his six-stage plot structure, which you can download from the website storymastery.com. So the thing I love about Michael Haig's plot structure chart or graph, if you like, he looks at the inner journey and the outer journey of the character in tandem. So the plot line is the outer journey, the outside external events that are happening for the character, and the inner journey is what's happening emotionally for the character, how they're changing and learning and growing as that plot line unfolds. And those two things, as I talked about in my last writing tip, I think, on Rights for Women, really interact and need to be bouncing off each other all the way through the story. But the other thing that Michael Haig has is this three-act structure where we have the turning point at around 10%, which is the inciting incident. There's a second turning point, which is a change of plans for the character taking the story in a new direction at around 25%. There is the midpoint, which is sometimes referred to as the point of no return, where the character really has to sit down and have a good hard think about what they're going to do next. And the next course of action that they take from that point on really sends the story off in the second half of the plot in the direction that's really going to cement what happens to the character. They're really making a commitment at that point. James Scott Bell calls this the mirror moment where they are reflecting on something and it doesn't have to be a great big thing. It can be quite a small light bulb moment that the character has sends us into the second half of the novel where we have turning point four, which is a major setback or sometimes called the dark night of the soul or the black moment at around 75%. And then at around 90%, you'll have the climax of the story. So you always have to have your plot building up to this point. uh, And you don't have to rigidly stick to these percentages. It doesn't have to be exactly 10% or 25% or 50%. But The thing is that having these turning points means that the the character is going to be evolving and developing. There are always going to be obstacles for them to overcome. And the reader is going to be pulled into the story because we're wired for story. Innately, we understand as readers and we want as readers, we want these turning points. We want things to be changing and developing and happening for the character all the way through the story. I think if you do write literary fiction, there can be a lot more flexibility around these sorts of things. But if you are writing commercial fiction and you're looking to create a really engaging page-turning story, 
then my advice would be to not ignore those turning points. Uh, you don't have to follow the three-act structure or a six-stage plot structure that Michael Haig maps out for us. But I highly recommend you having a look at that, the six-stage plot structure at storymastery.com. And sometimes it might just trigger something for you. He also has on there the six stages of kind of emotional inner journey that the character goes through. And for me, this has been a real game changer in terms of meshing that outer and inner story that we really want to have happening in our novels. So I hope that tip helps you. I hope it might have triggered something for you if this has been something that you're struggling with. And I highly recommend you checking out Michael Haig's website. There's a whole lot of great stuff on there. There's videos, there's notes, there's everything on there that you could possibly want to learn about writing. So that's it for this week's writing tip. And I'd like you now to grab a cuppa, sit back, relax, and join Rachel Johns and Patty Callahan-Henry on the Rights for Women Convo Couch. Hi, everyone. I'm Rachel Johns, Australian author of Romance and Feel Good Women's Fiction. And I'm delighted to welcome Patty Callahan-Henry to Write for Women to talk about her latest release, The Exquisite, The Secret Book of Floralia. Welcome, Patty. I'm so happy to be here. It's the future where you are. As I sit in America. Yeah, so 6 p.m. where you are when we're recording this and 7 a.m. where I am. So hopefully I'm awake enough to make sense. But at least you will be, the part will be good. You'll have to tell me what happens in the future. I will. Hopefully it's very exciting. So before we get started, for anyone who hasn't heard of you before, I'm going to read a little bio. Patty Callahan-Henry is the New York Times, Globe and Mail, and USA Today bestselling author of 16 novels. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, by the way. Including her newest, The Secret Book of Floralia. Now, I always forget whether Pam has this on YouTube or not, but I'm holding up the cover. So if you are just listening on the podcast, check it out. It's absolutely beautiful. This is the Australian cover. But in the background, you can see that Patty has the American cover there. So we'll talk maybe a little bit about that later. So Patty is the recipient of the Christie Award Book of the Year, the Harper Lee Distinguished Writer of the Year, and the Alabama Library Association Book of the Year for Becoming Mrs. Lewis. She is the co-host and co-creator of the popular weekly online Friends and Fiction live web show and podcast, of which I've already gushed and told her I'm a huge fan. So Patty, please say hello to Mary Kay Andrews, Kristen Harmel, and Christy Woodson-Harvey for me. I know they have no idea who I am, but I'm a huge fan of you all. They will when I tell them hello from you. They will know. Thank you. Patty is a full-time author, mother of three and grandmother of two, and she lives in Mountain Brook, which sounds amazing, Alabama with her husband. Her newest novel, The Secret Book of Floralia, is set outside Oxford in the hamlet of Binsey. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And will be released in Australia on May the 3rd by HarperCollins. And today we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of this book. I first heard about this novel on Friends and Fiction and absolutely loved the premise. So when Anna Glanninger at HarperCollins Australia asked me if I'd like to read an early copy, I jumped at the chance. And I have to tell you, everyone, I devoured it this past weekend. So if my edits are late this week, if my editor's listening, it's because I was reading when I should have been working, but it was worth it. So thank you, Patty, for just such an enjoyable, intriguing page-turning read. And I enjoyed learning about some of the rare book things as well. And I was actually born in Newcastle in the UK, which is where now a little bit of the story, possibly without giving spoilers, takes place. Yeah. There's a pivotal moment in Newcastle. It's always hard, isn't it, talking about books without giving spoilers away. I know you guys have that. Yeah. It's always a fine line. Yeah. You want people to be intrigued. And there's a big mystery in this, which we'll get to as well. But first, I'm going to hit you with a question that I'm stealing from Friends and Fiction, because I think it is so clever. Patty, can you start with telling listeners what The Secret Life of Floralie is about and then what it's really about? We love that question. And first, let me say how honored I am to be here. And thank you for getting up so early to talk to me. And I'm just starting to talk about this novel. So it's really exciting to get to do it down under. And it's the beginning because right by the time you get to the end of the tour, you just, oh, it's a book about two sisters. What? I'm so glad I'm meeting you at the beginning. (laughs) The Secret Book of Flora Lee is set in 1939. 
And it is the story of two sisters. We meet them in Bloomsbury, England. And an edict has just come down from the government. And the edict is this. All children must be sent away from the big cities, which Bloomsbury is because it is in London, and be sent to the countryside. It was called Operation Pied Piper. And I found out about Operation Pied Piper when I was working on my book, Once Upon a Wardrobe, which is about the seven, some of the seven things in C.S. Lewis's life that we can all see inside the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And when I was researching the Operation Pied Piper, I was struck by its title because the Pied Piper is a German legend about a piper who plays a flute and lures children away from the town and they disappear. And that was the first story. So it is about two sisters who are sent away and the older sister keeps the younger sister calm with a fairy tale world that exists only between the two of them called Whisperwood and the River of Stars. And in this land, they can be anything they want. They can do anything they want and they're safe there. And then a year passes and the unthinkable happens and Flora Lee disappears. And when she disappears, Hazel, the older sister, believes it is her fault because she believes that Flora Lee went to look for Whisperwood. And we flash forward 20 years and Hazel is working in a bookshop and she unwraps a package in the back room. She unties the red ribbon and it is a series of original illustrations for an American fairy tale book called Whisperwood. So that's what the book is about. When she opened that package, I think because I'd heard a little bit about the story, as I said, we've been speaking before, but I was just like, oh my gosh, wow. Imagine being her and feelings that would have gone through your body and such an amazing premise. And we'll definitely talk more about that. And uh, obviously we do blame ourselves for things that happen, but the way she really, that disappearance of her sister, it would be formative, but it's so sad that the way her life goes because of that. But at the same time, she does have a really good life. Anyway, what is it really about? What is it really about? And I think it's what you just pegged, Rachel, because that was brilliant. It's about the things we carry that we don't need to carry and how we need to stop sometimes and look at the things we're carrying, whether it's guilt or shame or a lie or a story somebody's told us about ourselves that is keeping us from being who we want to be. It is about, of course, the power of story. Mm-hmm. It is about the magic of bookshops and how they really do transform us and how books come to us in our life. And you're a writer. You know this because you're also a reader. Some books show up for us exactly when we need them. Yeah, so right? true. And so I wanted that to happen to Hazel, that this book would show up right when she was at a crossroads in her life. It is really about love. It is really about the bond between sisters. But mostly it is about the magic of story. Yeah, I was going to say all kinds of love too, isn't it? Yes. Because yes, it's the love yes. between sisters. It's the love between friends. There's some beautiful friendships in the book. And then it's the love and the complicated relationship between mothers and daughters. Very complicated. There's a lot going on in this book when you start thinking about it. I'm just curious, when you were talking about, obviously, what it's about and what it's really about, what do you think of first? Do you go into a book and think, I want to write a book about bookshops? I want to write a book about the magic of story and things like that. Or do you start with the characters and the plot? Like, how did it come about? What was the first sort of seed of inspiration? I love that question because if you lined up a hundred of us authors, yeah. your one, and said, "Where? what did this book grow out of? I've been doing this every Friday, little short thing on my Instagram about where do stories come from. Oh, and fabulous. It's, I haven't seen that. And yeah. it's a constant, and I've been going through the seeds of of the things that ended up in this book. And sometimes we start, with a character, like yeah. someone you meet, someone I think of. Sometimes it starts with what I said, like, why would they name this Operation Pied Piper? And I get curious, and a story grows out of that curiosity. I meant to say when you talk about Pied Piper, I remember watching the movie. I've never read the book, but I remember watching the movie as a child. I was fascinated by it. But you're right. I, when I re- heard about the Pied Piper program that they did in England, 
And I must admit, my history is not fabulous. And I hadn't heard about that. Neither had I. Oh, okay. I feel better now. Who had, who came up with that? I haven't found an answer. And I've asked everybody, anybody who named this is obviously not in the world anymore. So I don't know anyone high in the British government that I can give a ring. And if, if anyone's well, listening who does, we need to get to the bottom of that. But yeah, back to what came first. So for this book, you don't want to hear about 16 of them, but for this one grew straight up and out of the curiosity of Pied Piper. Wow. And as a mother, I have three children. As a mother, how could I have sent my children away? Mm. Because over 800,000 children were sent away within four days. Like it was so well organized that they were able to put 800,000 children in four days were put on trains with luggage tags, gas masks, knapsacks. It was a huge operation. Some went to Australia, some went to Canada, some went to America. But those four days on the train were all countryside. So there Mm -hmm. were, then there were other operations that sent them on ships. Oh, right. Yep. So. That was my original inspiration. So for this novel, I started with the sisters and I knew that I wanted a fairy tale to be what comforted them. And then everything else grew out of that. I believe that what happens when a story comes to life is that what it's really about comes with the telling. So we might go in with theme, like power of story. But as the story grows, so do the themes. If we follow them, I don't go in with a super rigid idea. I go in with a plot. Oh, yeah. I'd love to talk about that as well. Yeah. How much you know about the book beforehand? Yeah. Yeah. I, two sisters sent off. One disappears. They have a secret fairy tale world. The fairy tale reappears 20 years later and helps solve the mystery. That mm-hmm. is what I went in with. Yeah. Right. That's what. And as I started to outline, I loosely outline, I mostly find way through the writing. So when you say loosely outline, what does that look like? Okay. So I need to know what my character wants, why they can't get what they want. Yeah. What will they do to get what they want? How much will they put at risk? What are the obstacles they're going to come across while trying to get what they want? And then do they get it? They are great questions. Yeah. Yeah. And I head in with those questions and I try to find the major plot points that might answer it. And then I really am a pantser or a, I heard Neil Gaiman describe it once as whether you're a gardener or an architect. Yeah. I love that too. Don't you love that? And so I think I'm much more of a gardener and then I watch things grow. I've explained before, when the publisher bought the book, they asked me the same thing. Did you plot this out? And I'd like to explain, and it's not the best way to write a novel. It takes longer than other people. But do you know those books where you see a city, like a city that, like London, and it's a property table book, and every page you turn over, you see it like 1930, 1950s. Right. They add to the city with each turn of the page. Beautiful. Yeah. I love those. And that's how I do it. I get this crampy first draft down that has the story. And then with each page that I turn over it, every draft after the themes start to rise up, the complications start to rise up. And for Floor Lee, there's a mystery. And the mystery is what happened to her. And I can tell you that I went in knowing exactly what happened to her. Okay, you did. I was, that's one of my questions. I, I was wrong. Really? Yeah, but it didn't feel good going in knowing. Because I find that with, in, in plot, I sometimes, I'm more of a pants or a gardener as well. Or sometimes we say plotting and pants, but I'm a prayer. I start and I pray, please let it work out. <laughs> like that. I feel like a plan gives you some kind of confidence that maybe you could actually do this. No matter how many books you've written before, it always feels like to me, um, those are all flukes. I can't really do this. Yeah, that's fascinating because I was going to ask you, did you know what happened to Flora Lee? Sorry, I was saying Flora Lee before. I say both, so whatever. So I agree that I feel safer knowing. Yep. I feel safer having a scaffolding of some sort 
I usually do have a, at least a scaffolding and sometimes that whole scaffolding collapses. Yeah. Each book's different for me. I like having more, but you don't often. You do, yeah. And guess what? Sometimes with each book and what you just said, we go in and it's like we've never written a book before. Yeah. It's always begin again. Begin again. So for this, what happened was I finished and I was really happy with it. Egypt was happy with it. Everybody was happy with it. And we were about to take it out to sell. And oh my gosh. I know. And I said, I'm, I got sick. I got COVID. This was last January. And I couldn't even ugh, think straight. So I was just lying on the couch, binge watching, and I watched Mayor of Easttown. Have you seen oh, that? Yeah. No, but I keep meaning to. Oh, it's so good. But there is this twist in it. And it's in the last episode, obviously. And when it happened, I thought, Oh my gosh, I should have known. But also, oh my gosh, that was such a huge shock. Yeah. Right. It was there. And I wanted that. I wanted that. So I just sat there and I read it one more time and I, and it was waiting for me. I was like, of course. So you go, went back and worked out where, as we said, we're not going to give spoilers away. Sorry, listeners who haven't read it yet, but you're definitely going to go and get it. So obviously she comes back and we know that. I think that's not a spoiler because. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not killing a four-year-old. Okay. So yeah. Had she gone somewhere completely different? No. That part didn't change. No, that part didn't change. We better not go any further into that because yep. I don't want to give spoilers away. But that is really fascinating. I don't know whether you prefer fence drafts or ending and stuff, but I'm probably like, whatever I'm not doing right now, I prefer. <laughs> so, right, I'm editing and that I would rather be writing. And so, I say, when someone gives me a big edit, I think, do I want to do it because I am lazy and it's actually going to take a lot of work to rewrite that aspect of it because we know the domino effect and all that sort of stuff? Or do I not want to do it because I genuinely think in my gut that how I had it is right? So what I'm thinking is I'm in awe that after you had finished the book and it was actually ready to go out, you then decided, no, I'm going to go back in. How much work was that? And what did the editor say when you said that as well? I hadn't sold it yet. I did all those edits before I sold it. So I knew I was giving myself more work. And I was okay with that. I enjoy, for the most part, the editing. Because I'm so happy to have the story down. So if the story exists, and it's in these 110,000 words or whatever, and they say, let's shift this or shift that, they're not saying throw it away and start over. Yeah. Right. And the less edits I have to do, the better for me. Yeah, exactly. I completely agree with you. Obviously, the best thing sometimes happens in the edit. I just want to clarify, I'm halfway through writing a book and I had to stop for edit and I'm really annoyed. Uh, Oh, that's two different parts of the brain. Yeah. So I think that's this particular time and I haven't had that for a few years. So I'm cranky about that. So that is fascinating. So then you went back and... You changed it. How much did you have to rewrite or was it only a a bit of tweaking? No, I had to rewrite the last third pretty dramatically, but it was waiting for me. I didn't have to add a character. It was waiting for me. So I didn't rip it out and start over. And I'd love to be honest, Rachel, I love this book so much and I loved writing it so much. Yeah. I loved incorporating legends and fairy tales inside a story. In fact, I loved, I've loved it so much that I'm having a hard time diving into another book. I keep thinking, but it doesn't feel like that. And, it, yeah. and that's because I'm not there yet. Some books are magic like that, aren't they? They make you smile. I love to speak a little bit about the writing life in terms of getting a new idea and, and process in terms of whether you've ever feared you haven't got a new idea. I had a couple of years where I was really struggling with creativity. It was full of doubt and anxiety and things like that. It wasn't the book. And then I really stood back and I was like, no, I want to write books because I love story. I don't want to do this because I have to do it (laughs) because it's my job. And so I really worked hard to find that again. And then the last couple of books, I felt like you did 
And sometimes I just sit here in my office aisle and I'd be like, oh, I love this book. And that's the feeling yeah. that you want. And I feel like I, I almost felt that you got that when I was reading this book. Like it does feel like a labor of love. But um, we, Alice has always loved to know how a writer, I've got a theory actually there's two types of authors. I think that those who've wanted to be a novelist since they were, you know, knee high and they're sitting on their grandmother's lap or whatever, or they could hold a pencil the first time. And then there's the other one who come some stage later. And often it's because of therapy. Not not because you went to therapy, that's what I mean, but something just made you start writing. And it's often a, a thing that happens in your life. So I don't know if you fall into either of those, but how did you get started in writing? Did you always want to be a writer? What was your journey to publication like a little bit? Oh, wow. I love that theory. I'm probably in category A with the tweak of category B. I've been writing since I could hold a crayon, but I didn't think about becoming a writer. I didn't think that was a thing people did in the world. It seemed like only magical people did that thing in the world. Yeah. So my education in America was as a nurse. My master's degree was in pediatric nursing. Oh, wow. And I was a pediatric nurse and I had three kids under five when I decided that I just wanted to try and write one book. Yep. (laughs) I just wanted to do the thing that had sustained me all my life because I'd been such a reader and such a bookworm. And I had wrote little stories when I was young. And so that was 16 books ago. So I would say category. Did that first book get published? No. It got published five years later. I pulled it out and rewrote it. But I didn't, like the first book I wrote didn't get published. My second book I wrote was published. And I went back four books later and pulled out the first book and rewrote it. I've got another one of your books here that I ordered just recently. How's it going? I cleaned my desk yesterday. Is it got moon in the title? Oh, that's my first novel. That book is 20 years old. I got this. I wanted to read them both before this podcast, but unfortunately I didn't get to the other one yet, but I'm very excited about it. Oh, Rachel, you're going to have to tell me how different it feels because Losing the Moon is my first novel. It came out in 2004, almost 20 years ago. And see if it even sounds like the same voice. as. Oh, that'll be interesting. So I'm reading The Prince and the Last at the moment. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, now, correct me if I'm wrong. You started in contemporary fiction? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So, and now you've had about three or four novels in historical fiction. Is that right? Start with the wardrobe, once upon a wardrobe. Was that the first? It was Becoming Mrs. Lewis. Oh, okay. Once upon a wardrobe, Surviving Savannah. And then I also have an audible original about Florence Nightingale and it's called Wild Swan. And so I have that. And then this will be my fifth. And so you start in contemporary and now you're writing historical. Do you think you'll ever, you know, write contemporary again? Yeah, just tell me a little bit about that. It wasn't a deliberate sit down and go, I'm switching genres. It wasn't, I'm just not that thought out about the way I do things. The idea comes and I either grab it or don't. And what happened was... The idea of writing a book about Joy Davidman knocked me off my feet. And is C.S. Lewis's wife. And she is this fascinating American woman, a poet, a Yale Younger wow. Poets Award winner, a novelist, an atheist, a married woman with two kids. And she wrote a pen pal letter to C.S. Lewis. They were pen pals for yeah. two years. And then she met him. So... When I, that idea came to me, I wasn't thinking, oh, that's historical because it's yeah. the 1950s. Yeah. But I was a research nurse when I was a nurse. I put myself through grad school by being a research nurse and I love research. I love it. So in writing Becoming Mrs. Lewis, I just fell back in love with the idea that when we look at historical moments in history, And we look at it from a different angle, right? If we can find the, for example, Joy Davidman, Lewis's wife, was, has been for many people reviled because she was this Jewish American woman. And if once you find out who the real person is, you can't look at her that way, right? She becomes this entirely different person. 
And if we can pull out these threads of history and show things in a new way, yeah, we can flip the story on its head. And I'm fascinated by that idea. Yeah, I love that so much. It's fascinating. And I actually know what you mean. It doesn't feel like historical fiction in a lot of ways. Like I actually marveled when I finished A Secret Book of Floralie that a lot of what happens, it feels just like it could be happening right now. Like you could be in a bookshop and you find something. And the, I guess the only thing that's absent is our technology and things like yep. social media and DNA testing and things things like that. So I actually quite love reading more about this sort of time. It feels within our realm, if that ain't, it makes sense. Yes. It's not a huge, massive jump, I guess, is what I'm trying. And that fascinates me because, so this book takes place in 1939 and 1960. I was born in the mid 60s. And I'm fascinated by, especially the 1960s in England is when things were really changing. The 1960s were pivotal time in England and that, you know, the skirt hems are rising and the music is changing and the yeah. war is over. And it just doesn't seem that far away. But also, they don't have cell phones. No. Traveling, you're still a lot of times traveling by ship instead of mm. plane, ocean liner instead of plane. You're still sending telegrams and airmail and you're rarely making a phone call to America. I laugh when Hazel makes a phone call to America and she's worrying about the cost of it. But, you know, I don't actually really even worry about no. that too much now. But I remember a time even 20 years ago when, yeah, you know, that was a concern. So that's what I mean. It's like still in the realm. But, and I love pulling out the music of the time or the yeah. movies of the time or the, I, I, the food, right? It's so I love it. It sounds fascinating. Now, let's... I want to ask you a couple of things from that. It's set in England. Now, you, as everyone can hear, are not English. I don't know you. <laughs> so tell us a bit about that. I guess if you go back a couple generations, English. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I did that. I did my DNA hoping to find out something really fascinating. Oh, same. And I'm 99.999% British. So same. British and Irish. There's that. I guess it is my heritage, but it is not where I live and not where I grew up. It is where I often visit. And it's a great excuse to go on holiday. But... It is. I don't know how you feel. Tell me how you feel. I feel like certain landscapes call to us more than other ones. I just feel like certain landscapes make you feel at home and make mm -hmm. you feel more settled. And other landscapes are like pretty. But I'm terrified. Yes. yes, I completely agree. It's funny. I've probably got a weird one, but I've written a book in New Orleans in America. Oh, wow. I've been there a couple of times. And there's just something about the French Quarter. I think you're either love or hate it. And the Garden District and the ghosts and the history and the Gothic and the music and the horrible history in a lot of ways. But it's interesting. There's an Australian author. I cannot think of her name now. She writes, she's written one nonfiction book called Beyond Climate Grief. I listened to her at a festival a few years ago and she talked about that exactly. This thing is that concept of, you know, being at home or just connected to a place that you don't actually live. You weren't necessarily born there. This author calls it heart places. I believe in it. And I, what was that book called? Beyond Climate Grief. It's talking about climate change and the grief that people have from being in like fire or flood places and things like that, you know, where it's really affected their life. But I love that concept. And I feel that way about London, about Oxford, about the Oxfordshire countryside. And there is a tad bit of this book that takes place in America. There's an American author. And I just, I love the juxtaposition of an American in England that has a British heritage. Yeah. Because there's a resonance about an American being in Britain that also has British roots, maybe all, uh, two or three generations back. And so I, I love that, that kind of meshing up. And I like to make, as we all do as authors, but making landscape be such a part of the story mm -hmm. that there's no way that story could take place anywhere else but where it's set. And this story would not be anything 
like it is if it wasn't set in the hamlet of Benzi, which has no mystery and mythology around it. So is that obviously been to Oxford, not Oxford, but is Binsey an actual place? I, was, I should have looked that oh, up. Yeah. Yes, that's fascinating. Put that on the bucket list one day. I've got another question to do with this thing of the history versus contemporary kind of stories, because this is a debate I have with my uh, friends who are historical fiction writers and uh, my friends who are full stress in the contemporary camp. And in historical fiction, all of this going on about the research, so hard. Uh, you have to get the time, the, the, you have to get the clothing right, the music, the food, yada, yada. And I'm like, oh, let's play a violin for you because I think it's harder writing contemporary because in contemporary times, nothing is taboo. It doesn't matter if you're gay. It doesn't matter if you have a baby outside of wedlock. DNA testing can help you find stuff. Facebook, mobile phones are not good for the plot. Medical advances are fabulous in real life. But in book, it could be a pain because you might want someone to die. All those horrific people. So you've written both. What do you think about that? It's fascinating because the secret book of Flora Lee, she could have FaceTimed the woman That's in America that. and they could have done DNA testing on remains. It would be a completely different and less interesting story. You know, And what's harder to me about contemporary too, so I'm agreeing with you. And also what's harder about contemporary for me is it's harder for me not to put myself in the story. If yeah, that makes sense. Very good point. Yeah. Like my life and what my life feels like, I can take myself out of myself much easier if I'm in a dip. And I've never thought about it this way. So this is a great question. Yeah. I feel like I can dive into a historical character in a different way than I can a contemporary character. It's much harder for me to get out of my place and my time and my bias and the way I live and what yeah. I listen to. And I give all of those things to my contemporary character. I can't give any of those things to a historical character. Yes, it's almost like you're an actor with historical yes. fiction. No, that is really fascinating. Now, yeah. I won't keep you too much longer. I'm loving this chat. It's been very interesting to learn how you went about writing a book and all these if we've talked a little bit about the research, I often hear this with historical fiction authors, and this happened with you. While you were writing another book and you did the research for the other book, you came upon this seed of inspiration for this book. Well, have you found anything while you were researching this book that is leading to something else? Does that make sense? Yes, and it does happen a lot. I think the book I'm working on right now, don't ask me to describe it because I can't even describe it to myself. I know that feeling. But it didn't grow out of this one at all, except um, there's a little bit of England in it. But yes, it happens a lot. My book, Surviving Savannah, was very insular in what it is. So nothing has, the research in that one hasn't grown into anything. Yeah. It's set in 1838 Savannah and modern day oh, wow. Savannah. And that was its own entire world because it was about a shipwreck. But Becoming Mrs. Lewis led to Once Upon a Wardrobe. And Once Upon yeah. a Wardrobe did in some ways plant the seed for the secret book of Flora Lee. So yeah. now you have me thinking, I wonder what the secret book of Flora If there's anything yeah. in the secret book of Flora Lee that I would want to take a seed or a string out and pull, it would be the Antiquarian Bookshop. And anything that are just discovered in there and the stories that are found inside these old books are, yeah like things that are left behind sometimes as well yeah that notes to somebody in the margin annotations things like that yeah that would yes. be fascinating i did love that aspect of the book and that leads me a little bit to just quickly saying i really loved your secondary characters as well edwin who owns the bookstore and it's obviously books are his passion but he's also got a heart he was lovely and also kelty who is hazel's friend who she met during the pied pipe operation they're still friends all these years later which fascinates me so yeah just want to say i love your secondary characters so well-rounded and like real people there was also a bit of romance in there maybe yeah. we should quickly touch on that i do love a childhood love that's so innocent and sweet but there's harry and hazel the innocence that they were just discovering love that quickly halted by the disappearance of Laura Lee and it's shaped both who they are. Did you have a 
romantic arc thought out in the book? I did. And the reason I did is because I knew that her guilt over Floralie's disappearance would cloud everything she did, not pursuing what she wanted to pursue in the world, not pursuing what she wanted to pursue in her career, not pers- not being close to as close to her mom as she wanted to be, mm-hmm. and also in love. And so I knew that her life was in many ways stymied or held back. And on the face of it, even for her on the face of it, she had a very good life. Yeah. Maybe the term is good enough. She had a good yes. enough life. But she wasn't living fully. Exactly. And so that included love, career, passions, family. And I wanted all of that to break open. Yeah. In order to be able to have fulfillment in all those different areas that you say. Yeah. I love that. We quickly talked at the beginning about covers. So I'm going to ask you a tricky question that's like choosing your favorite child. For any listeners, just go and check out Patty's website. It's just ca- pattycallahanhenry.com, is it? Yep. And once you enter, I have to say I loved that you have to click a button to enter your website. And it felt perfect for A, this book, but also your Mrs. Lewis and the Narnia sort of entering the wardrobe. And this one, you're entering another world when you talk about Whistlewood. So I just love that on your website, by the way. That's just oh, website. So once you click the button that gives you access into Patty's secret world, there's so much information there too, I have to say. So definitely go check it out. Lots of wonderful posts and links to various things as well as the background of all your books and things like that. Um, we, you'll see the three covers there. Do you have a favourite? And you don't just have to say Australia because this is an Australian podcast. Okay, so I'm going to say each, and this is true, each is my favourite in a different way, right? Because this one, the American cover, which Usually when yeah. I get my American cover, I'm like, uh, yep. and I, I have been uh, the surviving Savannah, you can see it behind me, and Mrs. Lewis, they both have the back of a woman walking away. Yep. And I just knew that I was going to get this book and there was going to be a woman walking away yeah. with the child yeah. and I was going to weep. And so I got this and I, literally I opened the email. I was, and actually it was over 4th of July weekend last year. And I opened it and I was with a whole bunch of family and I squealed and I was like, y'all have to see this because and not hardly anything changed. Best feeling, isn't it? When you get a cover like that and you just love it straight away. And that river the hardcover will be blue <sighs> foil. It's beautiful. That's one thing I'm very jealous about you guys having hardcovers. They have very few hardcover books in Australia and I just love them. <laughs> I did too. And Canada doesn't either. So my Canadian cover is really cool. I don't have one to show yet. Also, the British one is the same as Australia probably, isn't it, as well? Is this all? I don't know. Actually, I haven't seen the UK Oh, anyway, they're all beautiful. But I've got to tell you what I love, love, love about the UK cover is it's almost like I told them what to do. And I didn't. Wow, isn't that amazing? There are all these little whisperwood animals hidden in the yeah it's beautiful i've got advanced reading copies so i'm sure it's going to be even more beautiful in the flesh and love that it is funny because often i see you you get the same at events and stuff where readers often want to know how much say authors have in covers and it can be wonderful or it could be terrible it can be so dramatic and obviously it's so important what the cover looks like but if you love it i feel like that Oh, when I opened the Australian cover and I was, it was only on my phone, I gasped. It is. That's fabulous. As I said, we probably should let you go with your evening, but just one quick question before you go. I've learned so much. So I'll definitely be listening to this back myself. Especially, I really love the questions that you ask when you're starting to write books. But before we leave, we'd love to hear some advice for writing. So I want to ask two parts to this question. My first part is what advice you'd give to aspiring authors from who's writing their first book, how to start. I'm sure you get the same sort of questions. I'd love to write a book, but I don't know where to start. But so what would you get advice to aspiring authors? And then also there's specific advice for those wanting to write historical fiction. Okay. Gosh, so much advice for aspiring authors. You could write a book about it. <laughs> I know, right? And some people have written some really yeah. good books about it. But I would start by saying, and I know this sounds obvious and it feels, this isn't for writers who are already writing. This is for people who are saying, I want to write a book. 
make sure you're widely read. Read. I have so many people come up to me and say, I don't really read, but I have this story idea. And I'm like, read the good stuff. Got language. Read poetry. Read the classics. Read Stephen King. I don't care. Just who I love. So that's why I'm saying it. I haven't read Stephen King, but I've been meaning to. I've got two of his books now that I must get to. I love his book on writing. It's amazing. It's amazing. But I don't read his horror, but I do read like his fairy tale. And so my, so that would be my number one piece of advice was, would be to just immerse yourself in the reading as a brand new author. And then the other is to focus on finding your voice, meaning how would you say it? We all emulate in the beginning. And things yeah. break free when we figure out, how would I say it? And we need to emulate because I think it's part of, for years, all I wanted to do was write like Ann River Siddons. <laughs> she was an American Southern author. The minute I felt something bubble up that was truly my voice, for good or bad, I think that's something to focus on when you're rising up. Fabulous advice. So if you want to write a historical fiction book, Anything specific and separate to that? If you want to write historical fiction, find something that fascinates you. Don't say, okay, everybody's writing about brown-haired spies who smoke cigarettes. I don't know. Uh, Don't say that this is what's hot right now. Because what's fascinating about historical fiction is when you find things you care about that other people are about. So find something that fascinates you and it will be fascinating. Don't worry about like, but what's popular right now is this, because by the time you write your book, that's not going to be popular anymore anyway. Yeah, that's such great advice. Thank you so much, Patty. It was absolute joy talking to you and everyone. You must definitely go out and get a copy of The Secret Book of Flora Leah. I'm so in beginning of May, all across the world. And it's such a great read. You just want to keep reading like I did. And you'll also learn a couple of things. <laughs> so that's always good. So thank you so much for joining me. Oh, Rachel, this has been so much fun. Thank you for having me. And good luck with the book. I hope it sells socks off all over the world. Me too. From your mouth. to got to. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>